So on this podcast, I'm joined by the sports writer and sports journalist, Hugh McDonald. Hi, you. how are you doing? Very well, how are you? I'm doing well, Hugh, thanks for joining us in our studio. Hi, yeah, my pleasure. So, Hugh, I just wanted to take us back on how you first got involved in journalism. Well, that's really taking people back, it's going back half a century, um, 50 years ago. Um, uh, I'd left school in my hires and I was going to go to university, but uh, I really didn't uh, want to pursue uh you know, pursue university, it was medicine I was going for, and I, I suddenly realised I didn't want to do it. And suddenly there was, uh, I looked in a paper one day and there was an advert for trainee journalists. So, uh, literally weeks before I was going to university, I applied to be a trainee journalist, I was accepted. And that's it, and that's how it happened. So, you've obviously had great years of experience, what see for you? What would what would be the main insp- inspiration for you to do sports journalism? Was it the football and heroes growing up, or, or did you just enjoy writing as a hobby? Or? Well, I went into sports journalism very late in my career. You know, um, uh, I mean, I started out as a reporter and then became a sub editor. Then I became chief sub editor of the Herald. Yeah. So I was really involved in news most of my life. Uh, and then, about 20 years ago, I, I switched uh, to the sports desk. There was an opportunity to come up to the sports desk. But again, it wasn't in writing, it was in production. That was being a deputy sports editor. So I moved across to that. And then about 15 years ago, uh, the chance came up to be chief sports writer, and I took that. And for for anyone what want to get involved in writing or journalism in general, what advice would you have from you? Read and write. That's the two things you've got to do. Just keep reading and just keep writing. Um, uh, reading informs so much. If you read uh, what is published, you'll know the standard of stuff that um, you have to aspire to. You know what uh, is needed uh, to get the stuff into a paper. And uh, I would I mean, I continually read and I continually write. I mean, you're always, always improving after 50 years. Uh, some people would say there's a lot of scope for me to improve. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but you still, that's what to do. It's a, it's a work in progress. Another thing as well is, especially in the landscape, the media landscape at the moment, is to, is to keep pushing, you know, outlets, you know, for your stuff. You know, try and get your product into an outlet. Try and... Trying when if you're interviewing anybody, if you if you if you're talking to anybody, if you get any content at all, see how that's transferable to other media. See how it's transferable to sports pages of, of uh, the mainstream media. See how it's transferable to a podcast. See how it's transferable even to, to television and radio. So always be looking to get your stuff out there because that that's you got to get your foot in the door. Yeah, no, because I started this podcast about 10 months ago and I've interviewed some great people and you obviously know this guy well I've interviewed Mark Mark Wolperton the old Rangers manager uh-huh. and, and for someone like me that was a great experience because I before doing this I had no experience of it of interviewing and stuff like that but I've just grown over months and months of doing it and so yeah absolutely I mean that's the thing I mean the doing it is the doing it I mean that's how you learn I mean I'm all for getting uh, lectures and courses and all that that's tremendous education's a great thing but you'll learn an awful lot more just by just doing it, just going out and doing it um, uh, and learning from your mistakes. And again, uh, 
all mistakes are, are not failure, they're all about learning, you know, that's what you do, that's how you learn through your mistakes. Yeah, so the next bit we just wanted to talk to you about you is you, you, you're obviously what Scotland at the European Championships. What, what did you make of the the performance of Scotland? I thought it was good in patches, but overall disappointing. I thought um, I thought our weaknesses in some positions came to, to catch up with us. You know, yeah. at the very top level, if you if you are weak in certain positions, teams will will identify that and then exploit it. And I think that's what teams did to us. Um, uh, you can't. You can't really make it up in international football. It's not as if you're short at a right back in a centre half, you go out and buy one. You're really landed with what you've got. Nothing in certain positions, Scotland proved to be um, just not up to the, the class that was demanded of qualifying from a group which contained, you know, contained the, the, the World Cup finals, the World Cup semi finals, and a Czech team that went on. Uh, to, to you know to do very well in the tournament so it was I mean it was a tough group uh, but uh, again I just thought it exposed our shortcomings yeah and I mean obviously it would have been great to have some people there like Lee Lee office as well what do you make of Lee because he just signed a new contract with Celtic as well well that's a gamble with Celtic isn't it you're just you're just gambling on Lee Griffiths uh, getting um getting fit and getting back to his best. Um, it's a short-term contract, so it's not a huge gamble. I don't think there was any way Steve Clark could have taken him. No. The Euros. I just don't think there was. I, I never bought into that, um, uh, you know, that line of thought. Um, that was certainly a position where, you know, we probably came up short, but I think there was, you know, I don't think we were, I don't think we were lucky at the, the Euros in terms of front of goal as well. We didn't have the, the class of a Kane or a Lewandowski, we, we know that. Uh, we also, you know, we had a couple of moments that were, were certainly unlucky shots coming off the line and on the woodwork. Uh, but I never saw Griffiths as a contender for the Euro 20. Yeah. And what do you make of the the position of the right back? Would you have played Nathan Patterson or would you have played Stephen O'Donnell? I'd probably have played... I would probably have played James Forrest. Um, yeah. I mean, he's played uh, right. I mean, if you were, if you were um, worried about uh, Nathan Parsons and experience, uh, you could have said, well, I don't. Um, Forrest has played uh, right wing back in Champions League matches for Celtic, so you could have played him there. My second choice would have been Parsons, and my third choice would have been O'Donnell. I mean, I thought um, Steve Clark quite rightly came out to protect Stephen O'Donnell um, after the Czech game and, and said people should analyse the game and, and look at O'Donnell where he'd gone wrong and, and he suggested that there wasn't too much wrong but O'Donnell was to blame for the crucial first goal he, he didn't come out and close down the cross he didn't provide any creativity going forward I think he was nervous there was a moment in the first half where the, the ball ran underneath his foot um, so while he had a better game against England, uh, I think he reverted to type against uh, Croatia. I don't want to make this a slag Stephen O'Donnell. No, no, no. He's a, he's a good guy and he's a good player, uh, but I think there was better options. Yeah, and in terms of the, the striking options, I thought Che Adams done really well as well. Well, Adams is, Adams is a, you know, is a top player. He's an English Premier League striker, as you know. I thought he was... A wee bit unlucky in the Euros, and he didn't get too many clear chances, and he was unlucky with the ones he got. Um, 
I don't criticise the strikers as much as others do because um, they're the best we've got and, uh, and uh, I mean Dyke seems to have come in for extraordinary criticism but you know I think he holds the ball up well, he runs the channels well, he puts in effort I think Steve Clark got some selections wrong I think Adams should have started against uh, the Czechs in the first game I think that was a wrong move um, great with hindsight isn't it uh, but I think Adams is their most adept attacker. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you about David Tumbo and Billy Gilmore because they two are great young players, but they didn't really get a chance as well, especially David Tumbo. Mm-hmm. I think Steve Clark, you know, is you know, first of all, Steve Clark is as good a coach as there was at Euro twenty twenty. He's a top coach. There's no doubt about it. Well, all top coaches have their foibles, you know, Clark's been chosen to, you know, by Benitez and Mourinho and Kenny Dalglish and Ruth Hulick to coach his team, so he knows how to coach. But all coaches, I see, have their weak and of idiosyncrasies that they're doing, and Clark's ones are loyalty, which is a great thing, and his other one is a bit shy of inexperience, particularly at the top level. And I think he, he, it was always going to be difficult for Gilmore and Turnbull and Parson to get in the team because of that. The, the, the push on Gilmore was really rewarded and uh, you know, his performance against England shows that Gilmore will be an international player for some time. I think Turnbull will be as well, but obviously Steve didn't feel like he, he should have uh, rolled the dice. I think Parson showed enough in his wee almost a vignette to suggest that he might be, um, you know, he will be, and I, I have no doubt about it, he'll be an international footballer. But again, coaches tend to stick to what got them there, you know, and Clark's loyalty and his caution, you know, maybe didn't prove, uh, uh, didn't prove as, as, uh, as beneficial to us as he might have hoped. I was just going to ask you that, do you think Clark, do you think he has a negative coach or do you think that's just the way he sets up? I've, I think in, in terms of I think in terms of Scotland team, Clark um, is you know regularly looking at playing opposition who are technically better, certainly in the finals of the Euros. And I think he does redress to, to caution. I mean I was amazed, I think the best bit of football under Clark was the first forty five minutes against Serbia and Belgrade where Scotland were on the front foot. And I think Scotland look a better side than the front foot. Um, there's dangers to that, of course. I mean, these sides nowadays, I mean, the way they counter with precision and, uh, and pace, really, you know, is dangerous. And then the first thing is always, let's lock the back door. But I think Scotland look better when they're, when, when they're pressing high in the park, like they did against England and against the Serbs in Belgrade. And uh, I think, you know, I think... I don't know, I mean, that maybe doesn't play into Clark's core beliefs. I mean, he's got, he's got the ability to change things. But I think many times, I mean, he's a very smart, intelligent guy. He knows football inside out. And I think he'd be looking at teams and saying, I mean, you wouldn't say this publicly, but saying, you know, they're better than us in, you know, many positions, particularly maybe going forward. They're better, you know, if you're, you're playing against an England team with a very sort of vibrant and pacey front six and you're putting, you know, and you're playing against uh, Croatia, you know, with, with good strikers in the Czech Republic, as you know, with a, with a smashing striker. Perhaps he's saying to himself, you know, we should we, we should sit back a bit. 
do you think that's why we do so well against the, the big squads? Because we sit back and we do what we do best? Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it showed against England that it was a good tactic, wasn't it? But I think against England, well, we, 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 we pressed a bit higher up the park than, than we normally do, and I think that got rewards. I think, um, I think the, the, you know, the Israel game and the World Cup qualifiers show was, you know, what we've got to do. You know, the first half, you know, we were, you know, basically rotten, we were right off it. And the second half, we upped it a bit and, and you know, and became more proactive and looked a better team. And uh, that's, I think, how we're going to go about it. But I'm very negative about the World Cup campaign. I mean, I, I, mean, I basically think it's over. I mean, I think Scotland are out, you know, already because of the results uh, uh, already. I think Scotland, I mean, you know, if, or, you know, it's, it's going to be a huge task to get anywhere near yeah. qualifying. I mean, for me, you just need to look at Denmark and Austria. D- Denmark played great against, was it, the, the Italians, mm-hmm. and uh, Denmark have played well against Belgium. They beat Wales, so it's going to be a really tough, Tough time for us. I think so. I mean, I think Denmark are first class side. I mean, they just. I mean, that's not. Uh, that's not breaking news, is it? I mean, we're no. in the semi-finals of the year 2010. But before the tournament, um, this tournament, I had watched them uh, play Austria and and absolutely thumped them. And and people were saying after the Austria weren't that good. And I thought I said no, Austria are decent. Austria's a good side, but Denmark have just cuffed them. Uh, so I think. I mean, I think. Denmark are, you know, pros a, pros a real clear and present danger to, to, to England. I mean, I, I think I think they, they've got uh, a more than decent chance and, and uh, uh, I think they'll win our group quite comfortably. And I think the Austrians will, will get the playoff place. Yeah. The next bit we're just going to move on to is a bit about the Scottish football. So, so what do you make it at the moment? Because you've got Steven Gerrard who's doing great things and also you've got Opposed to Coglu, who just joins Celtic as well. Yeah, well, it, it's always interesting, isn't it? I mean, because it's always it's a two-horse race, yeah. you know, and and, uh, and one horse was a, a non-runner last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And, uh, so it'll be interesting this season. Um, Rangers in a good place; they're, they've got stability. I think they'll lose a couple of players to transfers, but I think Ross Wilson is knows that. In fact, I'm sure he knows it, and he's already making. I think Rangers are making. You know, they bought a centre forward, so that suggests that you know they might be uh, resigned to Morelos leaving. Uh, I think they'll. I think they've got plenty of bodies in midfield, and the defence normally looks stable, but it looks as if it will stay as well. So they're pretty stable at the moment. Celtic's really intriguing. Because this is a new manager, a new philosophy. Um, his CV suggests that he takes about a season to get his ideas across to players. He's always a better second season manager, but that won't work at Celtic, you know. No. You know, um, the sell the pressure at Celtic is is immediate. I mean, he's got very difficult Champions League qualifiers against Mitchell and, for example. I think Hearts is the first home game of the season. There's a, a Rangers derby uh, before August, is out. Yeah, there is. So, um, there's... I mean, the pressure's immediate. I mean, the, the pressure the pressure is, you know, the pressure's coming down the line at a, 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 a fair lick. Yeah. I just want to talk to you a bit about that 
um, Lee, Lee Griffiths situation again. What do you make of the comments of Neil Lennon um, talking about Lee Griffiths? Because that that was that straight that straight everyone. I wouldn't say surprised, but that Neil Lennon went so pu- so public on that as well. Well, the thing about Neil Lennon, and it's a great thing about Neil Lennon, but, uh, is that if you ask him a question, he'll give you an answer. And the question was posed to him live on radio, and he gave the answer. Um, uh, the answer was no great secret to those inside the trade, and indeed no great secret to those who have, have watched uh, the unfolding of events of, of Griffiths over the last season. I mean, he obviously he came by unfit and overweight, and, and that's, just, that's just not acceptable. No, I mean... I, I'm a Celtic fan myself, sure, and I, I, I think Lee Griffiths has done, has done well, but I think now he just needs to get down and score and scoring goals again. Well, he's, I mean, he's, uh, he is sitting in the corner in the last chance alone. I mean, he's got a contract extension, but, uh, you know, this manager is already shown in, in his CV that he doesn't, um, he doesn't tolerate people not fully on board. His style of play is very, very active, very energetic. I mean, you're talking about a high press. You're talking about you're talking about players having to be, you know, really, really fit to even get in that team. You know, so not only does Lee face a big season, he faces a very important pre-season. He's got to go up to speed, and he's got to be really at the top of his fitness before he's even considered. I know that you've done an interview with. Sean Maloney, mm-hmm. and I've, re- I've read that, it's very good. Um, do you think Sean Maloney could be an option for the director of football now that Belgium are not in the European Championship? Oh, um, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I I mean, I, I, I do. I, whether Celtic do, I wouldn't know. You know, the thing about Sean is people might think he's too young to do that. Um, I wouldn't say so. I would say, I mean, I'm really impressed with Sean Maloney, his ideas, his commitment, his dedication. Another thing you know, I mean, Robert Martinez picked him and it's Sean Maloney and Terry Hongrie's his assistants, so he must have really, um, yeah. he must have seen something in Sean. I know, you know, talking to Sean about his dedication and his attention to detail with these top players, and I know from talking to others, he was really respected by the, the Belgian coaches. I really don't know with Sean I mean, what he his plans might be or his thoughts might be, but for me, yeah, he would be a he'd be a great contender for me. So when you were talking to him, what what was it that really impressed you with Sean? He's um, you know, first of all, his attention to detail, uh, second, his intellect, but most importantly, I think it was his um, his hunger to learn, um, like. He was, <laughs> it was almost like he was interviewing me at times on sort of, not that I had any great knowledge, but I knew people that he wanted, you know, what is this manager like, you've met him, what do you think about him? He's trying to pick up things. I know uh, he had a long conversation, for example, with Alan Ferguson, and would sit with, with, with Fergie and try and pick up stuff. So that's the kind of guy he is. He's a guy that soaks up knowledge. Uh, and he's a guy as well that when, you know, when the, when the when things change, he changes with it. He looks at things and goes, you know that. You know, he's open to new ideas, fresh ideas. I was very impressed with Sean Maloney. I always liked him as a player. He's yeah, me too. Very, very good. Um, I thought technically he was excellent, um, and he obviously uh, had heard stories 
coming from Celtic Park is his dedication to training. Um, he's always one of these guys that wanted to stay on for the extra hour. Um, so yeah, I, I had um, uh, a, a lot of time for him and uh, yeah, I think he's an impressive young man. And obviously, when he was at Celtic as a coach, he would have learned a lot from Brendan Rodgers as well. Yeah, I mean, he's worked with good coaches all through his life, you know, um, and he's learned different things. People forget, you know, worked very closely with Martin O'Neill as well. O'Neill I mean, gets his name for not being a technical coach and not being a training ground coach. Uh, Sean, you know, Sean would dispute that, and Sean points out as well that O'Neill was very, very good at other things, you know, instilling um, discipline and principles in the dressing room. Uh, you know, commitment in addressing it, which are completely vital to any team. Yeah, the next part I just want to talk to you about is the the Celtic situation. So, so what do you make of it at the moment? Because obviously, there's talk of Edward going, Ayer going, and Cham going. We don't know if Barkas is going to stay. Jack Henry's left. So, what do you make of it? And do you think they're so far behind Rangers? Well, I always go back to, um, you know, I always go back to when Martin O'Neill came in, everybody used to say um, Celtic were five years behind Rangers and ended up they were 20 minutes behind them. The first 20 minutes of a, a, a derby, Celtic were three nothing up and everything had changed. So I'm very wary of, of you know, saying that teams are very far behind each other. Celtic's big problem is things have got to change quickly. They've got to come to decisions on Edward, Ayer, and Cham, uh, Christie. Um, I think those, you know, I think those, I think those are guys are, you know, if not out the door, one foot is out the door. So they're going to make big decisions there, and you know, get the money from them, and then they've got to hire. Well, already, you know, there's a couple of players already in the door. Um, so they've got to, they've got to they've got to recruit well as you know too, um, but it's all got to be done very very quickly you know because as we talked earlier it's the end of this month is Champions League qualifiers yeah. it's you know a fortnight away Champions League qualifiers I mean it's ludicrous how quick this has come upon them and at the moment could you come up with a a, a Celtic start in eleven it'd be it'd be um, it'd be very Difficult to come up with one at the moment. The goalkeeper, do you do you persist uh, with being, or do you give Barkas another chance? Who plays at right fullback? Who partners Julian in defence? Obviously, Sheffield Wednesday guy. You would think. Um, do you, does Greg Taylor need you know strong um, uh, reinforcement at left back? Well, Volling goalie, is he coming back or is he going? Midfield, I think, in, uh, and in wide positions, right, right. I think Forrest will be a huge addition to Celtic next year. He was badly, badly missed by Celtic last year. I think if you take outside Brown over the last decade, Forrest has been, you know, the most important Celtic player in the last decade. Uh, outside, obviously, Brown, the captain. So then you've got a new captain in McGregor and, and, and you've got... You've got wee riddles to solve up front as well because we know Ellen Lucy's gone, we, we think Edward is gone. So, yeah, so it's a lot to do in, in a little time. But it can be done. It can be done. Yeah. 
If for you, do you think Celtic will rate off the Champions League qualifiers? I don't think they will write them off in that sense, but I don't think they would be totally surprised not to get through them. Remember too, Regan, it's a more difficult uh, process this year because they finished uh, second. So I think, I think uh, so I don't think the Champions League qualifiers is the highest priority at the moment. Yeah, and, and then you've got also this situation of who's bringing in, in, the, play, in the players for, for Orange Postacoglu as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know what? You know what is the process of bringing in players? I'm very relaxed about that. I think, see, I think the most important person at the club is the director of football, not the manager. Now, this causes people to choke in their suit because, but that's the way it works in very, very big clubs across the world. I mean, that's the way it works in the continent, where. You know, Leonardo at PSG, Zork at, at Dortmund, for example, Rummenigge at, at Munich and others, they decide, you know, the, the, the manager or the head coach can ask, you know, can ask for specific positions, but, the, you know, the decisions are made uh, at a higher level. See, I think that was the biggest problem with bringing in Eddie Howe in, because he wanted Richard Hughes in as a director of football, and I think the, the, co- the club should always decide... Because what happens if, if, if Eddie Howe does well and wins two trebles and then a big club wants him and then he needs to take the whole team again? Well, this is the thing why why um, European clubs won't entertain um, uh, you know, the manager having too much power. I mean, what you have to have is like you have to have a direct line of hierarchy. And what happens, happens is if one of these peer persons leave, it doesn't throw the whole thing into turmoil. Like, when, uh, you know... When Rogers left, he goes, uh, Congerton go, you know, everybody goes up, you know, he was even wanting to take um, John Kennedy. So you could have, you could actually have gone up there, Lennox Town would have been a ghost town. You can't have that. You've got to say, you know, you've got to restrict when the manager is sacked or goes and, you know, goes to another club. And that's the only two options there is, isn't it? That he goes and maybe his assistant goes with him, but the whole thing doesn't need you know, a revolution to sort. I just wanted to ask you as well, because Neil Williams spoke on the, the the TV and radio about not getting his backroom team. Do you think that's important for Ange Postecoglou that he gets someone he knows in? I think it would be good for him if he got someone, you know, there certainly seems to be rumours that he's going to get somebody in, you know, you know, to, to, you know, that he knows and trusts. I think that would be good, particularly when you know, he's coming to an alien environment and he really needs somebody that he can put 100% in, you know. Uh, yeah, I would, I would think that. But, but no more than that. I mean, what you're seeing now, I just noticed that uh, Mourinho's going to Rome and he's bringing in four. You know, that's an awful lot. I mean, it's all right if you're Roma and you're getting, you know, uh, access to Champions League money or you're getting access to the big uh, broadcasting deals. Uh, but... You know, you're looking at if Mourinho goes, and one thing's certain, Mourinho's going to go at one point, that's fine. People you've got to pay off. Yeah. Uh, now I just want to ask you about Scottish football in general. So what do you make of it? Because next season we'll have um, the Edinburgh Derby, the, D- the Dundee Derby, and we've also got some great games to look forward to as well. Yeah, um, I, 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 I agree with you there. I think... Scottish football's big problem, of course, is is, um, is that it's going down in terms of quality. 
Um, and uh, there's an, it's an inevitable consequence of not having access to big broadcasting deals. Uh, and it'll continue. Uh, and people say, you know, I mean, if you look at the Celtic, and you know, if you look at Celtic, the quality of Celtic compared to uh, Martin O'Neill's team, if you do uh, uh, the quality of Rangers in comparison to um, Walter Smith's team that reached a European final, it, it's gone down. You don't even have to even look at Aberdeen and Dundee United as well. You know, they've, you know, over the last half century, you know, they've fallen off a cliff in terms of quality, an yeah. absolute cliff. And there's reasons for it, you know, there's the, you know, Bosman ruling, uh, you know, the lack of money in Scottish football, the huge increase in money in the, the five top leagues, um, life-changing money now, you've seen top class, you've seen elite Scottish players, players that are playing in the, uh, the, the, the you know, playing in the Premiership with a good record of playing in the Premiership are going to League One teams in England yeah. for more money. So Scottish football has got a niche that is um, that is declining in terms of quality. But what we we can talk about in terms of excitement, it produces it can produce drama. Uh, I like the I mean I love the idea of the Hibs Hearts and the two Dundee teams being in that. Yeah, really me, me too. I really gives me a thrill to see that. And you know it's going to, it's full of intrigue. You know St Johnson, how many are they going to lose players? They've got a terrific coach in Callum Davidson. Um, you know, can Motherwell will resurge back and it's in Mirren under Goodwin will be doing Hibs. Scott Brown at Aberdeen too. I mean, Aberdeen's a great story. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's plenty of interest in the league and I mean, it's a good league to report on. You're never short of human interest stories, you're never short of controversy. I just think it needs a wee slot. I mean, whether that slot is, you know, accessing, um, you know, money, Broadcasting money by playing summer league, yeah, or, or, or accessing money by playing regularly for Sky or any other broadcaster games, and say make it you know Friday night is Scottish football night, you know having uh, having that, but there, there has to be a lot more um, sort of innovative uh, thinking. I know that BT Sport used to do the, the Friday night as well, yeah. and I think something like that would, would be great because if you look at it at the moment. Scottish football starts on the thirty first of July, and the Premier League is not on until September. Mm. So they could have like maybe five or six games on uh, the through the through the weekend, and then that would that would make it more appealing to people. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And, and I think the biggest problem is that we need to attract more people to watch it because if you look at Sky Sports in general, Sky Sports are a, are a great broadcaster, but. They're interested in Celtic against Rangers, you, mm-hmm. you know, that's their big pull for them. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at it, you've got some great teams. You've got St Johnson who have just won the Scottish Cup and the League Cup as well. So you've got some great attention there. Mm-hmm. What, what do you make of Stephen Glass at Aberdeen? Because obviously Derek McInnes was there mm-hmm. and he's done a great job for maybe five or six seasons. Yeah, I think... Um Glass is an interesting one. I think it was time to change uh, at Aberdeen. I think the fans had become slightly disillusioned and maybe Derek had been there too long and he felt that as well. I think the big problem with Aberdeen is not this thing where people say, oh, they expect to be, you know, have the team of the 80s. Aberdeen fans don't. No. They're not that. I think the big thing with Aberdeen was they saw teams around them doing well. You know, they saw Inverness win the Scottish Cup. 
We saw St Johnston, you know, winning a Scottish Cup. St Mirren won the League Cup as well. St Mirren won in the League Cup. Kilmarnock won in the League Cup. Uh, you know, and then and then just being stuck to one League Cup in a, a penalty shootout against Cali. And I think they thought they could have done a little better than that. Eh? Um, and I think that was the reason for a lot of disillusion. Um, Glass is interesting. He comes uh, with a good coaching background. The, the chairman obviously knows him. Scott Brown will be a goodness gracious Alex going to create some uh, you know ripples in Scottish football. Uh, with, you know him coming coming out in a, in a red shirt. So I'll be, I mean I think all Scottish will be interesting to see what happens up there. Yeah, the next bit I just want to get your thoughts on is Don Mackay, the Celtic Chief Executive. What, what, what did you make of Don Mackay, his first press conference? Very good. I mean, yeah. that's what he's good at. I mean, the guy's a professional. The guy's well briefed in marketing and and and, uh, and, uh, and PR. So that was him. That was saying, you know, what do you think of Messi at Keepy Uppy? You know, that's, that, that's what he does. This is what this guy does. This is his core skills. So I wasn't surprised they had a really slick and good press conference. The problem for him is, is, is not what happens in press conferences. The problem for him is what happens on the pitch. Yeah. That's what will that's drive his future. I mean, you can, you can talk about fan engagement, you can talk about merchandise, you can talk about you know, improving the brand. But the whole thing, uh, football, is football. That's the business. the business. The business is on the park and that's where he'll come under uh, great scrutiny. Um, I think he's got a very hard act to follow. I know Peter Law has been severely criticised, particularly over uh, you know the failure to win ten consecutive titles. But Peter Law was a you know was a huge figure in Scottish uh, football. You know he, he he muscled Celtic into the top table in Europe as well. I know he's going to continue working for the European Club Association, uh, but again. Um, Dominic's feet is in the hand or is it the feet of the, the footballers that run out on a Saturday or a Sunday? Do you think the problem for Peter Lobby was that the Celtic didn't qualify for a knockout European tie? They've not won a European knockout tie uh, through Peter Lobby's tenure there? I think that was part of the problem, certainly, but I think uh, that's, that's going to be increasingly going to be a big ask for teams outside the top five. I mean, you... I mean, uh, you can get an Ajax, you know, getting to a semi-final and you get a Monaco getting a quarter-final, but it's so heavily weighted towards the big clubs now in the Champions League. The Europa League's a, you know, the Europa League's a more manageable and, and, and realistic proposition. We saw that with Villarreal, for example. So I, I think his big problem was a 10. I think not, you know, I think uh, not winning 10, you know, was... You know, it was a big thing for Celtic fans. You know, I think they invested so much in it emotionally, um, and I think that I think that impacted heavily on his. You know, I think on their view of, of Peter Lawler. There's always people, of course, that that, that complained about him. Um, and football fans are quite rightly to you know, football fans are entitled to complain about it, however. The one mad view though was that he was a substantial figure for Celtic. I would say he was a great figure for Celtic and he had done really well. But also the big question was he couldn't get transfers over the line such as John McGinn. And I know one of your journalist friends, Hugh, Hugh Keevans, he talks about that, the John McGinn deal as well. 
because John McGinn's went on and done so well for down south for Aston Villa. Yeah, Peter Law's come out and said that was a mistake, you know, that was, you know, that uh, that was one that, that, that went badly wrong. Um, and, and when they go badly wrong, you know, they're, they're very visible. But a lot of the ones went, I mean, for the pool that Celtic were, were, were in, and John Park, of course, was really instrumental in this. I mean, Celtic had some sensational <laughs> buys, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, right through the team, you know, we always talk about Foster, Van Dyke, and uh, Dembele, uh, but there's been others as well. I mean, there was really good buys that were, and I mean, and and even Ledley, for example, cost very little money. He came on a free. Uh, Adam Matthews is kind of forgotten about. He was a smashing player for Celtic as well. He's a Giri as well. He's a Giri Nakamura. Yeah, Nakamura's my favourite player. So yeah. I mean, there's a lot of. There's a lot of play, you know, good players that were recruited uh, in difficult circumstances. But you've got to remember, there's an awful lot of players don't want to play in Scotland. No. Uh, I mean, they, you know, there'll be, it'll now be a case of the championship in England will be attractive uh, to an awful lot of players more than playing in Scotland. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you about that. Do you think... Uh, when you look back on Scottish football o- over the years, because you've come that long time, to think that we had Henry Larson, Brian Loudrop, George Alberts, Paul Lambert, with all these great players. I'm not paying disrespect to the players we've got now, but it was just a different generation, wasn't it? it was Absolutely, it was just a different class. I mean, Paul Lambert came to Celtic as a Champions League winner. Yeah. You know, Klaus came to Rangers as a Champions League winner. I mean, that can't happen now. It just can't. It just won't happen no. unless the financial kind of geography changes. You know, Scottish football in its present financial situation can can play these players, can buy these players, uh, and uh, and of course the Scottish football can't hang on to these players either. Freedom of movement. If you bring through a good player, you, you see it already. I mean, they don't even have to play in the first team. Billy Gilmore at Chelsea, a couple of Celtic boys away to buy a Munich. Ryan Fraser at Aberdeen was away to Ipswich. <laughs> you know, scouts know who's good and who's bad and, 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 and when they can get them and once they come in from and I don't, by the way, I have no problem with players that either. It's a very precarious career and if somebody comes to you and says, I can make you rich in two years, you're going to take it. Yeah. Who would be your favourite players from watching Scottish football? Over the years, because obviously we've, we've had some great players. Yeah, Bobby Murdoch would probably be my favourite player. Yeah. Um, I saw him win a European Cup final uh, playing with his best foot injured, and he was still man of the match. <laughs> his right ankle was done, and he dominated the European Cup final against Mitsola and Domagini, etc. Yeah. Uh, he also dominated the European Cup semi final at, um, at Hamden, beating Leeds United. So he'd be my, he'd be my, you know, he'd be. Uh, the top player I've seen but I've watched so many I mean if you go through other teams I'm Celtic supporter as well but if I, if, I, if, I, if I stepped away from Celtic you know and you went through others and I saw Baxter at Rangers who's an immense talent um, I thought Willie Miller and Martin Buchan uh, at Aberdeen were two of the best defenders I've ever seen I loved Neri at Dundee United I loved Sturrock at Dundee United I love the Hibs team of the early 70s, who's probably the best Scottish team I've seen that didn't win a league. 
that was the team of Pat Stanton, who was absolutely an men's player. Ali Edwards, uh, Blackley and Brimley in defence. Jim uh, uh, O'Rourke and Ali Gordon up front. That, they were a smashing team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, so many great. And then when he came into the 20. First century, you know, and you know, you saw that great Celtic and your team, and, and that you know, very powerful uh, Walter Smith team as well. So you know, really great, great players to watch as well. Talk to us a bit about Sir Alex Ferguson at Aberdeen. What's your memories of that? Because for because for me, um, when I watch back videos of that on YouTube, it's just great to see Aberdeen doing so well against so many top teams like Bayern Munich. Uh, and beating Rangers and Celtic in the last day of the season against when Aberdeen went to to Edinburgh to win the title. Well, I think teams could be reflections of the manager, you know, not just in tactics, but in attitude, aggression, and commitment. And the Aberdeen team was a a real reflection of the manager. I mean, Ferguson had a colossal career in Man United. I mean, just with thirteen titles they won. Yeah, thirteen. And, and uh, two European Cups, as I keep calling them, um, but two Champions Leagues, and uh, you know, a real handful of uh, you know, two hands full of other trophies. But I always think Aberdeen was a great achievement. Um, I think if you look at a, a team like Aberdeen, not just what they did to Real Madrid in, in a European final, sorry, uh, but you know what they did in Glasgow. That was an Aberdeen team that travelled down to Ibrox and Parkhead and won. Yeah. Aberdeen team that travelled to Hamden and won. Um, and that, they broke the, the, what was then the old firm duopoly. They broke that, they smashed that. And I think that was an incredible achievement uh, that the Celtic and Rangers supporters, you know, were apprehensive about Aberdeen coming to their own middens, as we would say. Uh, and that was an incredible achievement. Uh, and it was also, apart from um, you know, making a lot of their commitment and their dedication and their, um, mentally, their mental strength, but they also were a terrific team. I've talked about McLeish and, and Miller at Central Defence, uh, but in fullbacks, you know, Kennedy was an incredible fullback, McMaster, who sometimes played it on the other side. Rugby was good enough to play for Chelsea, that midfield. The two young boys, Simpson and Cooper, tremendous players. Guys like um, Strachan, Peter Weir, magnificent. Uh, and up front, uh, the players up front, Black, Hewitt, McGee. McGee, yeah. Archibald at one time as well. Ch- I mean, and uh, Charlie Nicholas as well. Yeah, later on Nicholas uh, came to Aberdeen. But um, but in the Fergie period, that strength was, was incredible. Yeah. And... Um, the next bit I just wanted to talk to you about is um, McLean at Dundee United. Well, what was Jim Mc, Jim McLean like as a as a person, and as a, and what are your memories of him? He was a very difficult person. I mean, he was a very angry and spiky person. You know, he would have a, a therapist would have had a field day with him. You know, <laughs> Ali Ferguson said when, when when Jim died that Jim had been his hardest opponent. In the dugout, you know, never mind Mourinho or Benny, Benitez or anything like that, it would have been Jim McLean, had been his, his toughest opponent. So that's probably the best testimony of how good Jim was. 
We quite remember as well. Jim was taken on board by Jock Steen for Scotland matches as well. Um, uh, you know, so he's tactically he was he was excellent. Um, he's a strange man, as I say, had this great passion and anger. And, and uh, I remember once, you know, like uh, I was at a game, was coming again. I think it was Falkirk beat Dundee United, and and afterwards. He was just a bit crying over a, a sending off. He was almost in tears over one of his players getting sending off. It was anger. It was almost petulance. It was remarkable kind of tension in him. Uh, but obviously he knew football, and obviously he knew football. Um, the teams he produced uh, for Dundee United were astonishing, really astonishing. Yeah, because obviously Dundee United famously beat Barcelona as well. Well, I've never been beaten by Barcelona. Yeah. All they do is beat Barcelona home and away. Yeah. <laughs> Barcelona is on the mantelpiece. Uh, but they, they, I mean, they, they run to the European Cup semi-finals as well. Uh, you know, again going back to Roma, uh, was terrific um, uh, performance. You know, obviously, you know, I think diddled out of it by a referee in Rome, but also missed a few chances in Rome. They could have settled it as well. But that team was of the highest elite level. I mean, that team, I mean, it seems for, for generations now, that Aberdeen team and Dundee United team, they were, they were challenging with the Liverpools of the day, you know. They were cha challenging the Soonesses and, and the Delishes, the European Cup winners. I mean, they were on, you know, on that par. I know Fergie went down in a European Cup tie to Anfield and they were comfortably beaten by Liverpool. And that charged... Ferguson on to, to even improve his team and upgrade it. But, I mean, if you look at it now, you know, um, the gap between the English Premier League and the, the, the Scottish Premiership is unbridgeable. Yeah. And what, and what do you think that's down to? Just money? Yeah. Yeah. No, no other thing. I mean, it's money. I mean, football's a very simple game now. You know, it's them that has the money wins. I mean, you, you're very... You might get a team that has, we talked earlier on about Monaco and Ajax um, having very good seasons. But Ajax couldn't build in that season and Monaco couldn't build in that season because they lose three or four players in the summer. You know, people look at the, the Van der Beeks and the Leeds and things like that and his Ajax and go, right, we'll have them. You know, and they go. So it's not as if you can say, God, you know, that Ajax team looks really good. They'll be something next season. Well, they won't because four of them will go in the summer. I mean, if you, um, any, I mean, any team now, it's so, um, it's so transparent now. You just look at the television and you go, what is that guy doing at Slavia Prague, for example? He's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's outstanding. Well, you'll know that the next season he won't be at Slavia Prague. It's as simple as that. No. You see in Scotland as well, you know, the, you know, Celtic have done well to hold on to Edward, but that can't happen forever. They did well to hold on to Tierney, but that didn't happen forever. No. Because they'll go. It's, it's, it's completely unbridgeable. Now you're talking about... What are you talking about? In Scotland, maybe the top player in Scotland will be on thirty to £40,000, right? And there'll not be many of them in that. In England, a player will be on... A, you know, a decent player in a Premiership team will be on 100 to 150 if you're really top, if you're a De Bruyne or even an Obama Yang, you're then taught about half a million. Obama Yang's £350,000 a week with Arsenal. Yeah. Yes. 
Can't get near that kind of stuff. No, the next bit I just wanted to talk to about what have you made of the Euros so far? Obviously, we've, we've had some great games. We had the Spain against Croatia and we had Switzerland against France, which, 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 which was just a great day of football as well. Mm-hmm. What have you made of the, of the Euros so far? I've loved it. Yeah, me too. I think it's been a fantastic competition. I think there's been hardly a chase of negativity. I think that, uh, I think uh, I love football and I love watching football, but I have been absolutely shocked over the last few years in the way football has got so much better in terms of pace and technique. Football is now so quick. The possession is so good. The the uh, the technique of the players is almost flawless. Uh, and it's just it's just been fantastic to watch. I mean, I watched Ukraine v Sweden live. I went to Hamden to watch that, and uh, even that, which is a lower level from the top teams in in, in the draw. Um, you know, I was there was a couple of players on show that night where you just said, you know, Forsberg, for example, you said like, he's a real player um, uh, and enjoyed it. I wasn't surprised that Ukraine got cuffed by England because you could see that night that they weren't at the top level, shall we say. And England have got you know, a really strong squad. The Italians, they look great, but for me, I think, I think England will win. I don't know about you, you. I think England now, I think the competition starts for England now. Um, you know, I've been amazed at the coverage of England. I thought they were very good against Croatia and everybody said they were rotten. <laughs> and I thought they were decent against Scotland. They had a couple of great chances that they could have killed the game early on. Mountain and Stones could have killed the game early on. And everybody said they were rotten. And then they play, play a really poor um, Ukraine team and everybody said they were great. I think the competition starts from now. I think Denmark will be a lot tougher than people think for England. And however they face in the final, Italy or Spain, will be a, a real step up for them as well. And that's when the nerves kick in, that's when the expectation kicks in. And that's when that's when bottles are tested, you know. I think England have got a chance. I know the bookmakers made their favourites. I think England have got a real chance of winning this. But I wouldn't be shocked if Denmark beat them. Yeah. See England there playing at Wembley for all their games, do you think that's a big, a, a big advantage? Yeah. 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 It's a big advantage in, in, in many things. It's a big advantage on the day when you've got crowds and all that. It's a big advantage in terms of familiarity. All these players have played many times at Wembley, so they're familiar with things, so they'll be an ease in that. But also the fact of the uh, uh, recovery. I mean, these players have been um, basically, I know they've been wrong ones, they've basically been uh, in the same environment, in the same recovery, not flying. I mean, Belgium, I think, flew something like 5,000 miles in the tournament. So, you know, they've been, I think it's a huge advantage playing at home. I think it's a huge advantage not taking those flights. I think it's, a, you know, a huge advantage walking off the pitch and going straight into recovery mode, whether it be ice baths, stretches, massages, not shooting to an airport and sitting on a plane for four hours. Um, yeah, I think any sports scientist will say that's a, a definite advantage. See, Kenny Dalquish, what was Kenny like for you to watch? Or, or did you ever get the chance to interview Kenny as well? Oh yeah, I've interviewed Kenny many times. Kenny's a funny guy as well. I mean, 
Kenny's very can be very hands-off in the media and kind of abrupt and tense in the media, but he can also be very relaxed. He's a clever guy, a very funny guy. As a player, he was, you know, when I was a Celtic supporter going to all the matches in my teens, um, he was the guy that was, you know, in basically those seasons where he carried the team. He was an extraordinary player. I mean, Liverpool, you know, everybody calls him a centre forward at Liverpool, but Douglas was, Douglas could have played right back and been the best, you know, one of the best right backs. No, seriously, he was that good. I mean, Douglas, Douglas played a lot of times almost in the Murdoch role for, for Celtic, driving them forward, uh, you know, taking the ball from the keeper and one twos up the park. Douglas is maybe the best Scottish, you know, and I'd say Bobby Murdoch is my favourite player and I've no reason to change that, but I think Douglas is probably the best Scottish player ever. A lot, a lot of people say Dennis Law. Yeah. But um. I, I, that would be a great argument. A lot of people, I think there's, there's, there's a, you know, a, you know, sub, subjective thing, isn't it? It's in their opinion. I think guys like Dave Mackay would be in the argument. I think Graham Souness is in the argument. Baxter's in the argument. David Cooper. I don't think so. Not at that level. Not at the top, top, top level. I think I mean Cooper was a marvelous player, but best Scottish player ever. No. Uh, and. Uh, you know, I think if you're talking about really the top level, you know, best Scottish player ever, my my mind mine would be top five are maybe Douglas, Law, Soonis, Baxter, Mackay. And now I just want to talk to you. Well, we'll go off topic, but we're going to talk about tennis now because I love tennis as well. So we'll talk about Mr. Andy Murray. What do you make of Andy? Because obviously Andy's done well. He's got two Wimbledon titles. He's got he's got he's got a US Open as well. But he's just been he's been he's been injured for a while and he's just played uh, two rounds at Wimbledon there. Mm-hmm. Do you think he's on the road to recovery? Because I see the comments on um, the BT and the Sky News that he said he doesn't know if it's worth it anymore. What do you make of those comments? I think Murray's in the same situation as all of us, or we're in the same situation as Murray. We just don't know. We just don't know. I mean, the whole thing's recovery and the whole thing's fitness. We saw glimpses in the two rounds at Wimbledon that he still can play tennis. But the fact of the matter is, he took him five sets to beat the world 100 and something. You know, that's not Andy Murray, you know. You know, it's... Uh, so what, and you saw quite bluntly what it come up against uh, Shapovalov. Yeah. And you're then talking about a player who's comfortable in the top 20, seeded 10, 22, good left-handed player. He's given you the test that other players aren't. And Murray field that test quite dramatically. There was never a point in that match where you thought Murray was no. could, could win it. Yeah. So he knows that better than you and I. So he's looking at it and he's saying to himself, what I want to do is compete. So how can I compete? Can this group of physios and fitness coaches come up with a plan that makes them resilient, that makes them be able to practice at full level, uh, that brings them back to the forefront of the sport? Uh, And that's got to be a, a huge doubt, an absolute huge doubt. Yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about someone who was huge on his career, Ivan Lindo. Mm-hmm. He was great for Andy Murray because they got, um, I remember that game against Djokovic in the US Open about 2 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. when he was um, two sets up and Djokovic brought it back. What is your memories of, of Andy Murray um, at the top of your game? Well, I think, I mean, I think Andy Murray was a, 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 a
Oh, that great resilience, that great Scottish word thrownness, he would never stay down, but that fantastic ability he had. People forget just how good Andy Murray was a talent, he had all the shots in the world, could play anyway, could play aggressive, big serve, could play deft, touches, um, really consistent back at court. And then, of course, you talk about Lendl, the great thing that Lendl brought to Murray was, you know, empathy. You know, Andy is famously has lost eight Grand Slam titles, but Lendl had lost a bundle in. Lendl had lost five Grand Slam titles before he won one. So he could he knew what it felt like. He could say, hey, Murray, I know how you feel. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And apparently, I mean, Andy Murray says it himself, Lendl's best contribution was to Murray after he lost the first Walden final uh, to Feather in 2012, where... Lendl came into the locker room and was very praiseworthy of what Andy had done and actually said to him, it'll never, a final will never be as tough as that one that you've endured. That's the toughest final you'll ever face in terms of expectation, opponent. And he was right because four weeks later, Andy beat Federer for the Olympic Yeah, for the Olympic gold, yeah. And then uh, in that, uh, a couple of a month after that, won his first Grand Slam and the next year, one Wimbledon and um, so Lendl played a huge part in the development of Murray. Yeah, so would you say that Andy Murray is the the best Scottish or British sportsman? British, best British sportsman, yeah, yeah I would say that. Um, again, it's a subjective argument but I think the criteria that Murray ticks is that um, we don't have a tradition in tennis like we have in boxing and football and, you know, and Murray uh, Murray just excelled at it. Uh, there's no, um, you know, it's a single sport as well. So he, I think that's more difficult than a team sport uh, for obvious reasons. And, and Murray did that. And he also excelled in the, the greatest of era of, of tennis ever. If you talk about the five greatest players ever to play tennis, three of them are playing today. Yes. So Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. So Murray won Grand Slams, won Olympic goals, was world number one, won Davis Cups, all while these guys are playing. are playing. And I think that is that is extraordinary. And see his record at the Australian Open, I think he's lost something like five or six finals in that one, in that one tournament. Yeah. You know? well, the great thing about Murray as well is that people say he's lost a lot of finals, but the only people who have ever beaten Murray in a Grand Slam final, the only people who have ever beaten him in a Grand Slam final are Federer and Djokovic. Nobody else has ever beaten the Grand Slam final. So you have to be Federer or Djokovic to beat Andy Murray in a Grand Slam final. And yeah. that's, that's a story. I mean, you would imagine, uh, you know, like, um, you know, when Murray was faced with, say, Murray's only played one Grand Slam, you know, there's only one, one Grand Slam having not to beat um, Federer or Djokovic in the final, and that was... Milos Rounich. And he beat him handily in three sets. Yeah. Um, I've met Andy Murray and, and I was also at the Davis Cup what, what did you make of the, the Davis Cup because I loved that event in, Gla- in Glasgow as well oh it's terrific in Glasgow what, a, what, a, what an atmosphere and I think it showed to Murray I think Murray yeah, I always remember Murray walked out on Saturday the first Davis Cup in, in Glasgow in, uh, with his, his brother he actually kind of flinched at the noise you know, you know yeah. he knew quite how much he was loved up here uh, uh, and what 
I mean, I was lucky enough to be in Ghent for the final. And, oh yeah. And uh, what a, you know what a weekend that was. You know, again something and you know just astonishing. You know the way Murray you know played that weekend. David Goffin, the the famous lob. The famous lob yeah. which he had the other night as well. He brought it back in his repertoire. He did. Uh, uh, the other night against Otto. So um, yeah, what a night that was. The next bit I just wanted to touch on, you've got a love for German football as well, yeah. in particular Dortmund. Yeah. What is it about Dortmund that you that you fell in love with Dortmund? My son. Yeah. That was what it was. My son um, got into uh, the Bob team and um, uh, I started watching the Bob team with him. Then he, started, he went to a Dortmund game with his missus in the Westfalen and he came back. And Alistair and, and I have been to games all over the world together and he said to me, we must go to West Farm, you know, I said. And it just started from there and then as soon as it started from there, it kind of grew wings and we became, you know, we go over regularly, you know, we, uh, not necessarily Dortmund, you know, we, we, we find we're more likely to go to away games now. Uh, and, you know, we've been, been Dusseldorf, Frankfurt, Stuttgart, Munich. Bremen, uh, I'm just trying to think where else, you know, we've been, we've been all over, uh, all over watching Dortmund. Because see the yellow wall, that's something that is um, renowned for Dortmund, and the, the Dortmund fans as well, they're amazing to to be involved in. What is it like to, to, to be in that stadium? Oh, it's an incredible stadium. I mean, it's culturally it's very uh, different as well, Regan. I mean, they, they, they are so supportive of their, their team, you know, they, um, it's considered kind of, it's funny in Germany, it's considered bad form to criticise the team. We were at a, Ali and I were at the German Cup final, the um, Dortmund lost to uh, Wolfsburg. De Bruyne was playing for Wolfsburg that day and it was absolutely astonishing. Anyway, at one point in the first half, Gundogan shipped a tackle and uh, Ali stood up and roared at him, you know. And the Dortmund fans around us weren't pleased in that, you know, they were, they, they, you know, half time we were talking to him, it's not a big argument, but they said, no, you don't say that to a player. And Ali was putting out that, yeah. Ali was putting out, but he shipped the tackle and he said, yeah, but he's our player. Now, you know, it's culturally, there's wee differences. Changes, yeah. Yeah, um, but German football is just fantastic. I mean, the stadiums are brilliant, uniformly brilliant. Uh, the stadium experience is fantastic. Um, good food and I don't drink but you, the boys that we go over with they've been known to have a pint or two so you can sit and watch the football a pint uh, uh, and uh, it's, it's cheap um, the tickets aren't as cheap as people say they are you know there's this no. myth there's this myth that, that you know the tickets are cheap they're cheap for, cheap for season ticket holders but they're, they're, they're relatively cheap for um, you know for punters just coming in but not certainly so I mean a top Windows League game, a good ticket would cost you about 40 quid. Um, That's quite good compared season, to... Compared yeah. to the Premiership, but maybe not compared to, to, to the EPL, you know, it's um, uh, where you can pay up to 100 just to, to plant your mum. Uh, but the stadiums are fantastic, you know, great stadiums. Yeah, and uh, in terms of that club team, how do you look back on it? Because it's some great players like Lewandowski, you had Gundogan, you had Royce who's still playing there, you had some great players. Mkhitaryan as well. Mkhitaryan, yeah. And you had Hummels uh, before he went to uh, uh, 
Kishek, um, I mean, there was, uh, there was, there was so many great players in that team. I mean, I think the great thing about um, see, to be a great, great manager, I think you've got to do something that's beyond the expectation. You know, you've got to do something that's unexpected, and and he did that with Dortmund. He won, you know, in Bundesliga with, with Dortmund. He got them to a Champions League final, and against a very, you know. You just noticed that Bayern have just winning title after title. He broke that hegemony. So you know, I wasn't surprised they did really well at Liverpool. You know, I think he's a real a real coach. Um uh, and a guy who, like Ferguson, passes on his passion to his teams. You can tell you can tell a a a, a club team by the way it plays, you know. Yeah. Uh, um that energy, energy. vibrance and pace. Um uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a great Dortmund team, um, a really great Dortmund team. And obviously they've got Marco Rose as a new manager. Yeah. What do you make of him? Because he's done well with München Gladbach. Yeah, and he, he had a good career there with München Gladbach um, and also, you know, Salzburg as well. Um, he's got a really interesting team next season because he's losing Sancho, um, but it looks as if they're keeping Haaland. Um, because you know, for a variety of reasons, because of the COVID, there's not as much money going to win. Haaland this season is going to cost the best part of two hundred million euros. Next season, strangely enough, it, he's got a release clause, so you'll get him for and transfer fee terms. You get him for you know a third of that. So if he's got Haaland, he's got Bellingham, he's got a young centre forward as well. Miyoko is is very good. Um, Royce will have another season. Uh, there's still something in the legs of Hummels. Um, so he's got he's got the makings. Uh, he's addressed the goalkeeping problem there. There was a uh, I don't think Burke's a, a a goalkeeper. So yeah, I mean, they had a good season last season. You know, they, they made Champions League after a, a dip. They won the Pokal, which is their cup. Their domestic which is a huge competition. And they, were, they did well in the Champions League. They, they were unlucky against Man City, you know. Probably a, re, a poor referee decision cost them against Man City. Yeah. So what is the expectation, do you think, for Dortmund then? I think the greatest hope for them, amongst their fans, would to win a Bundesliga. You know, just for, you know, just for, you know, Bayern just to have an off year. And then, you know, in Dortmund have a strong year. But that would be the strongest hope. I think the expectation is to finish second, have Champions League, get to the knockout stages of Champions League and have another punt, maybe retain the Pokal. That'd be, that'd be seen as a good season. If you look at someone like Bellingham, who just won the 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 German Young Player of the Year for Bundesliga, and you look at Sancho, would you say that Germany is a, is a great place to for young players to go? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because what what happens is that they get games. I mean, Sancho was probably Man City was that they they did uh, you know um, uh, Klopp uh, sort of Pep had bought a left winger in his position in it, Sani, um, and so he knew you know he knew that at seventeen he wasn't going to get a game. Goes to Dortmund and his first name on his sheet. Sancho uh, is is. Top notch. Sancho is real top, top, top notch. Bellingham as well. He's burning out at seventeen again, and does the same thing. He's not in every 
team that uh, Norton selects. But you'll get 30 games a season, uh, and he gets games in the Champions League. So it's been a great career move for him, and he's also it's translated into England camps now. Bellingham at 17-18 is an astonishing talent, Regan. Yeah. He can... He could be, he could be an England player for the next 15, 15 years. Yeah. See for, see for you, who would you rather have in your team? Would it be a Kane or um, a Haaland? I would take both, but at the moment I'd take Haaland. Haaland, you see, is, I think Haaland's a future Ballon d'Or winner. Kane's an exceptional player. Haaland's stronger than, 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 than Kane. Even though Kane's strong, he's, uh, I think he's a better, we're nitpicking here, but I think he's actually a better finisher, and he's certainly much quicker. He's, Haaland is extraordinarily quick. Um, I think Haaland will be, as I say, Haaland will be in the conversation uh, for Ballon d'Or very shortly. The, the final part of the show, you just wanted to ask, are you, are you still doing your bit with uh, PLZ Soccer with Peter and Ruffy? Yeah, it's a, um, uh, it's a summer break at the moment. Yeah, well, I hope to be re-signed for the new season, Regan, you know. Contract talks are ongoing. But I hope, uh, like Peter and Robbie, yeah, I expect to be back for the new season, yeah. So how do you enjoy that? Because well, because I'll, I'll love watching it with you and Tam and Alice McConnell and Tam Cowan. It's just a great show to be, in, to be involved in, is it? It is. It's a fantastic show to be involved in and it's a... What's really good about it, nobody says about it, everybody works on it are really good people, you know, you're working with nice people, good people, but you're also one with feel very professional. I think, and Peter Martin, anything I know about broadcasting, and I'm not, I don't profess to know much, I've learned from Peter Martin, he's just the supreme, absolute supreme operator in, in front of a mic, just effortlessly does it, and it was a great thing for me to work with Ruffy, because as a young man, Ruffy was one of my heroes. Ruffy was the Scottish international goalkeeper. A great goalie, yeah. A great goalie, and it's great to meet people that you kind of worshipped as a as a young man and find that Ruffy's one of the most humble people you'll ever meet. One of the nicest people you'll ever meet. One of the <laughs> best people you'll ever meet. Uh, so yeah, I love the show. A lot of people laugh about his background that he's got in the in the Facebook Live. <laughs> uh, Ruffy is Ruffy will be not the uh, will tell you within five seconds of meeting them three World Cups. Yeah. Played in three World Cups. That's that's a great record. Yeah, especially um for Scotland as well. Finally, what is your favourite uh, Scotland memories growing up here? Favourite Scotland memory, without a doubt, be 1973 Hamden, Joe Jordan, uh, Adam, uh, the goal uh, they took against Czechoslovakia. Wally Morgan cross. Joe Jordan headers in. Scotland won the World Cup after an absence of 16 years. Uh, that would be, without doubt, my favourite memory. Okay, Hugh, well, I just wanted to thank you for joining us in the, sh- in the studio. It's been great to have you on. It's been great to talk to you, Regan. All the best. Thank you, Hugh.